Amen. Amen. Am I on? Can you guys hear me okay? Great. Well, hey, thank you for being here. I'm just, again, so glad to gather with each of you. And, um, you know, for those who are in the room for the first time, many of you, it's your second time. So you know where everything is. But those who are here for the first time, thanks for finding us here at the bottom of the ramp. And, um, yeah, I'm excited to keep going in the book of Genesis together. Now, today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 4, uh, the story of Cain and Abel. And uh, with each of these uh, stories at the beginning of Genesis especially, um, these are things that surely you have heard about or thought about. There's lots of questions related to each of these stories. And um, of course, we can't address all of it here. But I want to give just a short plug uh, to all of you uh, that during the week, there are two opportunities, well, uh, I guess one for each of you, for you to get together with others in the church to discuss these passages as we're going through them. So uh, women, uh, you, you have an opportunity to gather with other women and talk about this stuff tomorrow morning, uh, Monday mornings at 9.30, right, Georgia? Nine at nine. And then uh, guys, Thursday mornings at seven, um, we gather, both of those are at Dave and George's house, which is just across the street, across Broadway here. So I uh, would love for you to dive in and be a part of that because that's a place you can go deeper and really uh, wrestle with um, whatever things are, uh, are uh, troubling you or intriguing you or inspiring you in these passages. So like I said, we are at Genesis chapter 4 this morning going to read the first 16 verses together. Now, the man had marital relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Then she said, I have created a man just as the Lord did. Then she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Abel took care of the flocks while Cain cultivated the ground. At the designated time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the ground for an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought some of the firstborn of his flock, even the fattest of them. And the Lord was pleased with Abel and his offering. But with Cain and his offering, he was not pleased. So Cain became very angry, and his expression was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your expression downcast? Is it not true that if you do what is right, you will be fine? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you, but you must subdue it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he replied, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So now you are banished from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your, bro your brother's blood from your hand. When you try to cultivate the ground, 
It will no longer yield its best for you. You will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Then Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to endure. Look, you're driving me off the land today, and I must hide from your presence. I will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, All right then, if anyone kills Cain, Cain will be avenged seven times as much. Then the Lord put a special mark on Cain so that no one who found him would strike him down. So Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, as we're silent together, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts, that we would hear from you about your word. Lord, in your mercy and kindness, would you allow us to see ourselves in Cain's shoes today? Would you allow allow us to understand how our hearts are prone in just the ways that his heart is? And when we enter into that place, Lord, I I pray that we wouldn't be like Cain wandering away from you for the rest of his life. But that by your kindness, we would be drawn home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, we'll come back to Cain and Abel, but... I want to talk about church for a second, because um, that's where we are. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, so to the dismay of um, every pastor, including me, Jesus really actually doesn't talk about church very much. Uh, he barely mentions church. Uh, so it, it, despite that, my peers and I spend the majority of our waking hours thinking and working about church. We think about how to rally a group of people toward a certain mission. We think about, you know, if, if we're privileged like, like me, we think about how to lead and equip and support a staff who's helping with that. We think about budgets and facilities like this. We think about proper communication and the various tools we need to leverage in order to communicate well, you know, online presence, stream or not stream, podcast, social media, books, um, um, articles, blogs. We think about how to recruit and retain volunteers with super great announcements like you just heard. Uh, We think about how to, you know, keep our kids' ministry 
effective and safe about how to compete with football season, kids' sports, hiking, camping, skiing, brunch, and Netflix. Oh, we also have to think about the service order, you know, start with the prayer, end with the prayer, which ones to do, which songs to sing, um, how long the sermon should be. Uh, Visitors, hello visitors, we think about how to get you in the door and then connect with you well and and build genuine relationships and and you know maybe one day you'd want to become a a committed member of the church and and serve and and leadership development and oh gosh i could go on and on and on and i'm not i I, sorry i'm not just using the sermon to complain about my job i love my job now there are principles that you can sort of draw out of stuff that Jesus says that help guide all of that. But he never directly talks about any of it. None of it. In fact, he only uses the word church twice. In all four Gospels, he only uses the word church two times, both in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 16, Peter says, you're the Christ. You're you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Yes, you've got it. And on this rock, I'll build my church and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then that's, that's all he says. Don't know what it means. In fact, Catholics and Protestants have been arguing about it for, you know, the last 600 years. The second time he mentions church, just probably just a few days later in the story, he starts, he's talking about the keys to the kingdom again. And, and then he works backward to mentioning the church in Matthew 18. But he's not exactly talking about all this stuff that I just talked about, you know, visitors and service order and and lights and speakers. And no, he's not talking about that. In Matthew 18, the only detail he gives us about church at all is conflict. That's the only thing he talks about. He lays out this wise process to deal with sin and conflict in the community through gracious confrontation. And then as a last resort, if the gracious confrontation doesn't work and someone's unrepentant and doesn't want to return, they're to be expelled from this community called church. So, all right, what what are you getting at? Jesus tells us nothing about most of what we're trying to do here. But he promises us that if we spend enough time together, we will have all sorts of conflict. And you're not really doing church until you're stepping on each other's toes and until your toes are getting stepped on, until you're dealing with with offense and forgiveness and grace and confrontation. The way that we work that conflict out is what makes us supposedly different from the rest of the world. That's that's what is supposed to set Jesus' people aside from the rest of the world. You see, conflict is nearly fundamental to humanity. 
Look at our story. All right, first, you know, the, the, the story last week, you have Adam and Eve blaming each other, blaming the serpent for eating the forbidden fruit. And now their sons explode in conflict. I mean, it, it, gosh, it goes downhill fast. Chapter 2, the man's just smitten with his wife. Oh, she's amazing. Chapter 3, he's blaming her for eating the fruit. Chapter 4, his sons are killing each other. Cain and Abel heard their lullabies as babies through the resounding echoes of covetousness, shame, and blame, because that's what happened to their parents. So when God accepts Abel's offering and not Cain's for whatever reason, Cain's response is not covetousness. It's envy. He, he turns against his brother. He's disappointed about the offering, and that quickly turns into anger toward his brother. Now, it's important to note here, like I said, there's a crucial difference between covetousness or, or jealousy and envy. Those are actually different things. With jealousy or coveting, it's just, I want something that's not rightfully mine. I want something that someone else has. I, I deeply want it. But envy, hmm, envy is when you're mad at someone because they have something that you don't have. If if Cain coveted something that Abel had, it wasn't for long. He didn't try to take something that wasn't rightfully his. He was angry when God delighted in Abel's offering, in Abel's sacrifice, and that turned him in anger against Abel. If coveting is wanting something that's not rightfully mine, again, envy is wanting the person who has it not to have it, whether or not I get it. The envious seek suffering for their perceived rival, whether or not the other person knows about it. They want the other person to suffer. Often, in fact, often when envy is in full bloom, the other person doesn't even know that they're your rival. You just hate them because they have it better than you. And people oftentimes want somebody who they're, you know, they feel envious of to suffer regardless if it makes their life any better. Um, there's a philosopher, Cornelius Plantinga, which if you have that name, you have to be a philosopher, by the way. Um, and uh, he's a philosopher and theologian, and he writes a lot about envy. And he compares this, you know, to the 18-year-old who demands that her parents enforce the same curfew on the 16-year-old sibling that she had regardless of whether it affects her life right now. Envy is a form of anger that tries to punish the other. So Cain gets angry, and God notices. He notices. The words are really interesting. Take a look at this. So what we see is, why are you angry, and why is your expression 
downcast. But the, the Hebrew there, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? That's what God asks Cain. You know, they were worshiping. They were looking up at God. They were offering praises to him. They were bringing their stuff, the fruit of their labors to him. They were looking up. But Cain stops looking up. Now his glance is sideways. His, his mom, Eve, she looked at the fruit and loved it. Cain looks at his brother and hates him. I wonder if anyone else here fosters a secret desire for someone to suffer. You, you may not know that desire is there until that person suffers. Look, low-hanging fruit in our culture, we, like, we give ourselves permission to hate certain politicians and to love others. And I wonder, you know, think of, the, think of the public figure that just turns your stomach when you see that person's face, whoever it is. If you found out that that person, I don't know, committed a crime and was going to go to prison or got sick or their marriage fell apart, Is it possible you might be a little happy about that? I've been listening to a podcast that's, uh, that describes the implosion of a, of a mega church. It's, a, it's about a church called Mars Hill in Seattle. Maybe a lot of you have been listening to it too. It's the rise and fall of Mars Hill. But periodically as I've been listening to this podcast and you know the, the pastor was a really influential guy when I was going through seminary especially and then just had a total implosion, kind of a, a gruff, prideful, arrogant guy. And as I've been listening to how it just all imploded, I've had to pause once in a while and say, wait a minute, I'm enjoying this too much. Like this, this is a terrible implosion. People's lives fell apart. And, and I feel like it's a win for small churches somehow. Like how, how scary I'm, I'm a son of Cain. Remember, the first people who heard all of this are the Israelites. The Israelites who have just been freed. They've been slaves in Egypt for seven generations and they've been delivered and now they're in the wilderness and they're trying to figure out who this God is who just rescued them. And, and, uh, and so the book of Genesis is an introduction of who this God is and what this God is like and who they are in the midst of it. And there they are wandering in the wilderness and maybe early on they're really happy. We've been set free like her song. I am set free. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, I'm happy to be on your music team anytime. See you. <clears throat> Whew, yeah. But eventually... Things aren't going quite as well. In fact, there's Moses. And at first they're like, Moses, you talk to God. He's too scary. But then, you know, Moses is spending all this time in the tent. And he comes out and his face is glowing. And, and you know, he's the only one who kind of knows what they're supposed to do because he's been talking to God. And one by one, they start turning against him. They start hating him. What are you doing? Why are you leading us out here? 
Even Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, grow bitter at Moses' special connection with God. Were those weeds already growing in their hearts when they heard about Cain? One way that uh, psychologists might describe what's going on with Cain and his error here, his initial error, is the word triangulation. Triangulation. Here, this is a great picture of triangulation. Cain offers a sacrifice to God or, or an offering. God doesn't accept it. Something about God is too uncomfortable or too scary or whatever, so Cain doesn't want to deal with the person that he actually has a problem with, so he finds someone else to deal with. See the triangle? God, Cain, Abel. And Cain turned towards Abel and tries to punish God through Abel. That's what's happening here. Every teacher knows that the school bully is a kid with an unstable relationship at home. That's what's happening. The people who are supposed to care for him, it's not working out for whatever reason. But in this case, the caretaker for Cain is not unstable. We don't know why God doesn't accept Cain's offering. There's actually a lot of theories out there. I think it's a little bit obvious in the text. You know, Cain just offers his grain, and that's a totally acceptable offering. He offers the grain that he's grown. But Abel offers the first and best of his flocks. Like, it, ex it explains it. Cain's is, Cain seems to be sort of a religious, you know, just like, yeah, I'm doing my duty. Like, let's, let's get on with it. And Abel seems to be an act of passion. That may be why God accepts one and not the other. The, the Israelites are, are seeing a lesson here. They're about to learn in great detail about sacrifices. In fact, there's a whole book of the Pentateuch, Leviticus, that's about like how to do sacrifices well. And you're like, okay, we offer a dove at this time and grain at this time, and we're supposed to cleanse ourselves here. And what's with all of this guidance for this? Well, what it's really about is depicted here. Whatever the reason for God accepting one and not the other, it becomes clear that what God is, is disturbed by is Cain's heart. He, it's something about his heart is not in it. He's just going through the motions. Whereas Abel is passionate about it. It actually is quite distasteful if you look at the rest of Scripture to God. If people offer the right things with the wrong heart. Many generations later, the prophet Isaiah will give voice to God's feeling about this. Do not bring any more meaningless offerings. I consider your incense detestable. You observe new moon festivals, Sabbaths, convocations, but I cannot tolerate your sin-stained celebrations. From the very beginning, God has been after our hearts, not necessarily the stuff that we give him. So Cain's heart wasn't turned toward the Lord, and it quickly turned against Abel. But this story is full of good news for those who struggle with envy. 
God is pursuing Cain so patiently through this. Look, he initiates a conversation with Cain before the crime is committed. Cain, what's going on, buddy? Why are you angry? Parents, you know, you're t- you try to get, get down in your kid's face. Hey, tell me what's going on. In fact, there's an interesting thing that happens here. When he asks him why he's angry, then he, then he says this, you know, is it not true that if you do what is right, you'll be fine? That, you know, okay, I get it. That's kind of, that translation is in our normal language. But here's what the Hebrew really says. Is it not true that if you do what is right, your face will be uplifted? Remember, Cain's face had fallen. What God is trying to get him to do is not just get him to be fine. He's trying to turn Cain's face back to him. Look at me. This is about you and me, guy. Let's get it right between us. Stop worrying about your brother and return to me. Because if you don't return to me, that same power struggle that God described as a punishment for the man and wife in chapter 3, that's going to happen between you, Cain, but it's not going to happen between you and other people. It's going to happen between you and sin itself. And sin will be like a beast, a demon, crouching at your door, waiting to pounce on you. This monster lying in wait is surely the seed of the serpent, just like Cain is the seed of the woman. So God gives him an invitation back, and immediately Cain says, Abel, let's go on a walk. He takes him out in the field, and he murders him. My fellow parents, you know the feeling? when you're trying to correct your child and you can see, oh, these words are not even coming close to their brain or heart. Like, they're just waiting for me to be done so they they can keep going with the thing that I am so patiently trying to tell them not to do. (laughs) You know, and as soon as you're done, boom. Like, like, did we even have that conversation? This is what happens with Cain. He doesn't even interact with God at all. He ignores him and he immediately lashes out and kills his brother. The the knowledge of good and evil has taken root in him, distorting and corrupting him. He blames his brother. He sees his brother as evil simply for doing the right thing because it made Cain feel bad. God's patience should be up at this point. And yet he comes to Cain and gives him an opportunity to confess. Guys, remember, this is the way we approach God now. He comes to us and says, come, share your struggles with me. Let's talk it out together. But Cain lies and then deflects. I don't know where he is. That's the lie. Is it, am I my brother's keeper? Am I his guardian? There's the deflection. It's not my responsibility. But God knows where he is, of course. Abel's blood is shouting from the ground. Cain is guilty. That's what it's shouting. 
So Cain is cursed. Adam and Eve weren't cursed in chapter 3, you guys. The ground was cursed. The serpent was cursed. Adam and Eve weren't cursed. But Cain is cursed from the ground. Our translation said he's banished. But it literally means you're cursed. You have to wander. You will never be home. You're going to live in the land of Nod, which means the land of wandering. And yet, God will protect him. You guys notice Cain's only response is to complain? He doesn't even at that point say, Oh, woe is me. I see. He says, God, this punishment is too big. This isn't fair. I know I killed my brother, but someone might kill me. What? Wait. <laughs> what? Now, God promises to protect him. God even says that there will be sevenfold vengeance on anyone who kills Cain. And then the chapter goes on. We didn't read the second half of the chapter. There's lots of names, and I can't pronounce them all. <laughs> um, but it's the line of Cain. In fact, it goes really quickly. It, it goes through seven generations of Cain, you know, his son and grandson and great-grandson and on and on. And, and in, in, in the section that we read aloud together, the Lord is mentioned ten times. He's all over that passage. In the line of Cain, no mention of God. The whole line has wandered away from God. His name is never mentioned. Cain's face fell and he, he led his whole family away. In that line, civilization is established. People build cities. They learn to work with metal. They invent instruments and write songs. And... They learn that the way to structure society is through intimidation and violence. The way of Cain takes root. Cain's great, 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 great grandson, Lamech, is somebody who gets a little spotlight in his family. Lamech is a brute. He acquires two wives, it says. He doesn't marry them. He gets them. It's the first polygamy mentioned in the Bible, and it's it's not healthy. <laughs> and then he, he sings a song to his wives, boasting about what an intimidating and scary guy he is. In fact, this is the song. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for hurting me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times as much, then Lamech, 77 times. He doesn't even understand God's protection of Cain. He's like, look, God justified Cain like seven times. Well, now I've killed a guy, and I'm like 11 times better than that. <laughs> okay. Um, things have gotten dark here. The story of Genesis is a really a story of a downward spiral. And then suddenly the story goes back to Eve. At the beginning of this story, she kind of boasted. Like, I've created a man. I want to give credit, the Thursday morning guys noticed something about this that I hadn't seen. So guys, come, you'll see things and you'll teach me about this. Um, Eve boasts at the beginning and then at the end she has another son and her tone has changed. The Lord has given me a son. Her, her tone has changed from boasting to gratitude. And it's this third son, Seth, 
who will be the line that leads to Abraham and Moses and David and Jesus. Remember, the only thing Jesus guarantees for us, he doesn't guarantee a a cool place to meet like this. He doesn't guarantee microphones or announcements or an online presence. He doesn't guarantee any of that. The only thing he guarantees for us is conflict. And that's where we learn with each other. You're not really experiencing church until you've been offended, remember? And it's been happening ever since Cain and Abel. At many points, Jesus' followers have acted just like Cain. We have killed each other, guys, in our history over theological arguments. We have literally drowned each other because we disagree about baptism. That's a problem. (laughs) That's Cain living on in us. But that is not the way of Christ. His way is utterly revolutionary. His desire is the same as the Lord's in Genesis 4, to turn our face back up toward him. The Lord wants Cain's heart. Jesus pushes the the law, the rules, he pushes it from external to internal. Listen to his words in the Sermon on the Mount. This is amazing. Um, I, I want you to think about our passage with Cain and Abel. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subjected to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with a brother will be subjected to judgment. Next slide. So then, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present the gift. Now, I've always thought Jesus is talking about brothers because in his family, we treat each other as siblings, and I think that's right. But do you notice all the connections to Cain and Abel in this passage? Cain and Abel, they, they started with an offering that turned to anger, that turned to murder. Jesus reverses it. He starts with murder, and then he goes to anger, and then he goes to the offering. Jesus is undoing the work of Cain right here. We are to go in the opposite direction of Cain. The way of Jesus is shocking. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. So in chapter 18, when he's talking about the church, I'm sorry, in Matthew 18, when he's talking about the church and conflict, you know, the only description of how to do church, guess what? He actually has this passage with Cain and Abel in mind there, too. So he explains this whole process, how to deal with conflict. And then Peter comes and says, uh, here, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? As many as seven times, Cain? Jesus said to him, not seven times. No, 77 times. Why seven and 77? Friends, It's Cain and Abel and Lamech right there. We are undoing this challenge. And it's, gosh, it's it's a beautiful idea. You know, there's so many passages. James 4, where do conflicts and where do the quarrels among you come from? Is it not from the passions that battle inside of you? 
Or Romans 12, which pleads with us not to seek vengeance when we're wronged, but instead, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Oh, what a beautiful idea, right? You all can sit here in your chairs and just look at me and listen to me and think, yes, I want to follow in the way of Jesus like that. Right up until there's a chance for the person that you're envious of to suffer. <laughs> it sounds nice, but we've still got Cain in our bones. Who can live? We who live in the line of Cain actually will find the ethic of Jesus impossible. Welcome back, kids. You can find your parents. And the way of Jesus is impossible. We can't live peaceably with all on our own. You'll keep on hating your enemies. Your heart will always wonder, what's in it for me when there's something going on? When you offer an offering to the Lord, any sort of religious devotion, it's kind of like something you'll do for yourself the way Cain does. We'll never be able to drown out the, the voice of Abel's blood crying, guilty, guilty, guilty. That's what his blood says. Friends, to be free of envy and to pursue peace in the way of Jesus, we need to hear God's heart for Cain through Jesus. Do what's right. Let your face be lifted. Confess your anger. Seek out the Lord and find him covered in blood on the cross because that blood is speaking a better word. Abel's blood says guilty. This blood says forgiven. 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 The only way we can live peaceably with one another, the only way we can truly offer any forgiveness is if we see how far we've fallen with Cain and that his blood was shed on our behalf. He is a new and better able. Let's pray together. Lord, in your mercy, would you allow us to be aware of the envy and anger that lingers in our hearts? Maybe it's toward a spouse or, or, um, or a friend or an employer or a coworker. Maybe it's toward the neighbor who won't mow their lawn. <laughs> who knows? Lord, let, let, let us be aware of that right now. Because, Lord, we're about to come and receive your offering at the altar. We're about to come. And Lord, if there is someone that has something against us, Lord, would you give us the opportunity to make it right before we come to the altar? Or perhaps, Lord, at the altar, would you give us the fuel that we need to go seek that person out in love? Lord, to take the first step Let us reverse the way of Cain by receiving the blood of Jesus. 
in his name.